Christian Medical and Dental Associations hope you enjoy today's chapel message. I'm going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians, uh, the first chapter. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers, loved by God, we know that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out uh, from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. <clears throat> they tell how you turned from, uh, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I ask that as we come before your word that you would teach us and you would open our hearts, that you would help for us to see that we are all beggars needy of your grace and that you would remind us of the beauty of that grace and the rescue that you brought to us through Jesus as we study your word together today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you know, I've always been taken with how uh, both the Apostle Paul and Jesus were um, so protective of the transforming message of the gospel and how both were so adamant um, that what it claimed was in direct opposition to the orthodox religion of the established church and how vehemently they hung on to defend the unique message of the gospel. And so that's what I want us to be looking at here together this morning. What is the core message of the gospel? And Paul here is writing back to one of his own church plants. And if you recall <clears throat> the story from Acts chapter 17, it was a city in which when Paul went there and preached to them, a lot of people believed. <clears throat> in fact, so many people turned to Jesus that it caused quite a stir. Um, and those jealous of Paul started a riot, and Paul and Silas um, had to escape with their lives in the middle of the night. And so Paul had to leave this place in a hurry, and he didn't really get a chance to follow up uh, on these new converts before he had to leave. And so now he sends Timothy back uh, to check in on them to see how they're doing. And Timothy, as we read in several sections of um, the epistle here, has just returned and given a report there were some good things and there were some bad things. And so Paul immediately sits down and pens this letter back to them. <clears throat> and in this opening chapter, Paul is recalling how it is that they became believers. It's a reminder and it's a summary of how they became uh, Christians under his ministry. And, and as a result, I think what it gives us is a, a window into understanding just what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. See, it's dealing with the issue, how can you know for sure that you're a Christian, or how can you become one if you're not? What is the essence of what it means to become a Christian, and what kinds of things constitute the false gospel that he is so desperate to defend it against? 
That's what we're going to be talking about today. And I think it's an important subject for us to talk about um, here today because of the religious climate that we live in in Appalachia, a climate I think very much like the ones that both Jesus and Paul were critiquing because at its heart, our religious culture is one in which we are told that in order to become a Christian, or at least to be a really good Christian, it takes uh, the discipline of living an outward life of morality and purity. So you try to stay away as much as possible from at least the really bad sins, the really big ones. Um, as, As the line often goes, after all Jesus did in dying for you, it's the least that you could do to serve him and obey him and to give your life as a holy sacrifice. And I think as a result, so much of the religion and our culture has become about how to outwardly try to force the heart to live and to act in certain ways. And we tend to use whatever external means are necessary, even if that's guilt and shame and fear, if that's what it takes to keep people in line. And Paul says here in this passage, that is not Christianity. Now, I think the other reason this is such a critical study for us today is because as a result of all this, there is a rapidly growing number of people in our culture who are simply giving up on church altogether. Uh, The church in Bristol, we all know, is aging and it's dying. And I think it's doing so because the younger generation has seen far too much hypocrisy, too many shallow games of pretending. I think they've, from the conversations I've had with many of them, they've seen through the veneer of shallow Christianity where self-righteous people look down upon and judge those that they believe to be beneath them in various ways. They become cynical of the church, and they simply walked away. And you see, here's the problem that we need, why we need to address this, and that is that these people think that they've rejected Christianity when they simply rejected a version of religion that masquerades as Christianity. And it's a version that I think Paul here is equally critical of in our passage today. And so I think it's important for us to understand that if you're going to reject Christianity, you better make sure that you're rejecting the real thing and not some version that's left a bad taste in your mouth. And if you're going to embrace it, it better be the right thing as well and not some counterfeit. Because even if you've been raised in the church and you think that you know what Christianity is all about, my question is, are you sure? Because listen, there... There's a lot of very legitimate reasons for people walking away from the church, and I get it. The church has abused and hurt a lot of people in horrible ways. There are a lot of shallow and manipulative games being played out there with people's lives, but was that genuine Christianity, or was it a fake version masquerading as the real thing? I mean, would thousands of people have given their lives gladly for the version of Christianity that people are so quickly rejecting today? I think probably not. And so I think it's important for us to understand here today what Paul says makes a genuine Christian, what's the heart and the essence of the gospel that he says is so easy to lose that he's desperately, constantly, everywhere defending it against religion. And so he begins by telling us that you become a Christian through the gospel. Verse 5, he talks about our gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says this is his gospel. Chapter 2, 8, and 9, he calls it the gospel of God. Chapter 3, the gospel of Christ. 
Clearly, Paul's understanding of the gospel as the essence of everything here is critical to what it means to be a Christian. And how is the gospel described here? Well, there's a synonym that Paul uses for the gospel in verses 6 and in 8. He calls it the message. And what he means by this is is that the gospel has a content to it. It's a series of words and, and ideas. It's a series of assertions. In other words, you don't become a Christian simply by Um, hearing preaching about love in general. You don't become a Christian simply by hearing about morality and goodness in general. You you don't even become a Christian simply by hearing about hell and wrath in general and deciding that you want to take God's escape hatch. Rather, what Paul says is the gospel is is the the essential thing that transforms our lives. And see, I I mean, let let me just defend everybody here. Our Appalachian culture has been built around big tent revivals where, where the powerful persuasion of guilt and shame for the poor life you've been living, where the survival instincts of fear of hell and judgment bring people down the aisle over and over and over again. It, it's built around homecoming Sundays where we try to gather the wayward back and try to get them to return to church just for a Sunday. But is that the gospel? And, and I would propose to you that that is religion's outside-in pressure to try and save yourself. And the gospel, you see, is not just a little bit different version of that or a different way of trying to articulate the same thing, but the gospel is the exact opposite. See, that's why Paul chooses the word gospel here to describe this process, because the gospel is literally, in Greek, good news. And it's good news about what Jesus did. Whereas religion is all about good advice. It's about what you have to do. See, the whole point of the religious culture is how you can work your way back to God. What steps do you have to take? What decisions do you have to make? What commitments do you have to take on if you're going to find your way back to God? Whereas the gospel is all about how God worked his way to you through the life and death of Jesus I mean, that's why we celebrate Christmas, right? He actually came after us. He pursued us. He came to rescue us. It's the exact opposite. See, do you work your way to God? Or does God work his way to you? It is the utter opposite. It's not even close. Now, before we move on here, let me just define what I mean by gospel. Let me give you a definition. It's a definition I give to my people almost every week. They've all got it memorized because I bang it into their heads. But I do so because it's so critical, I think, to what it means to be a Christian. And, and I think also because we're, we're living in a culture that sells a version of Christianity that at times is the exact opposite of the gospel. So here's that definition. On the one hand, and I got this definition from Tim Keller Um, It's just stuck in my heads for decades now. He says, on the one hand, you are far more sinful than you ever imagined. Right? You're far worse. You're far more messed up than your most honest confessions. And yet, on the other hand, you're far more loved than you ever dare dream or hope. And and here's the kicker. You're, You're both at the same time. See, liberal versions of Christianity have the love part down, right? God just loves everybody no matter what. I mean, that's kind of his job, right? But it's a love that cost him nothing because there's no real sin to have to pay for. And therefore, it rescues you from nothing. And so it's, it's nice to have God love you. It's a sweet sort of thing, maybe kind of like having your grandpa's love. 
It's just God's job to love me. And then you have conservative versions of Christianity where they've got the wrath and the judgment part down, right? God is out to get everybody for all the wrong things that they've been doing. But there's an ongoing fear that you can never outrun because it's a debt that's never fully paid for unless you can live a really good life, which none of us seem to be able to do. And you see, that's all that most people think that they get to choose between, a loving God who never judges or a judging God who never loves. And neither one are the gospel. Because what we have in the gospel is a God who hates sin more than the most hellfire brimstone preacher could ever hate sin, but one who willingly takes all of that judgment upon himself so that it is paid in full by Jesus for us. Which means that we don't just get God's forgiveness at the cross, we get his righteousness. See, our sin is all credited to Jesus. That's why he has to die on the cross. He's bearing our sin. He's living a life we could never pull off. But the result is that God now gives us all the beauty and the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus. By living that life that we owe to God. And as a result, when God looks at us now, he sees us as holy and righteous and beautiful, right? God adores you. You know, the the prophet Zechariah tells us that God sits down every day and writes love songs that he can sing over your heart. Now, that's not what we naturally think, is it? I mean, God might love me, but barely, right? For now, until I do that again. But listen, the only way that you can have a definition of a gospel like this is when you can hold both halves of the gospel together at the same time. See, a good religious person will say, of course God loves me. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I I walk the aisle. And a good liberal will say, well, of course God loves me. It's his job to love everybody. But only a Christian who's been transformed by the gospel can say, I can't imagine how it's true. Why would God love somebody as messed up as me? I don't get it. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. But it's true. So that's the first thing. What changes us is the gospel. And the gospel has content to it. Now, secondly, how do you know if you've actually become a Christian through the gospel? Because it seems pretty important for us to figure that out. How can you know for sure? And see, Paul tells us here how you can know that you're becoming a Christian, particularly through the gospel. Um, He says it happens when those words become a power, right? See, what does Paul say in verses 4 and 5? He says, we know that you belong to God because the, the words of the gospel that we spoke to you didn't just come to you as words in your ears, but it came in power, right? Not just in words, but in power. Listen, a cynic who doesn't believe in Christianity doesn't believe in any of the assertions of the gospel, right? Nope, I'm in charge of my own life. Nobody else tells me how to live and act. A religious person is somebody who believes in all the assertions of the gospel. They believe in Jesus. They believe in the cross and all of that. They've got all of the facts down. But a Christian is somebody who not only believes the assertions of the gospel, but that the gospel has become a power within them. Now, what does that mean? And I want you to notice how the Bible says this all over the place and not just here as an anomaly. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. 
right? It doesn't bring the power of God. It doesn't result in the power of God, but it is the power of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, God made the light of the gospel shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The gospel displays the very glory of God shining out through all the chinks in our crackpots. Listen, here's the way that you can tell if the gospel is becoming a power within you or not. Maybe I haven't offended enough people yet. Let me go one step further. Religious people love to study Christianity. Lots of charts, diagrams, outlines, always trying to understand one more set of details that maybe is missing tend to be very obsessed about the end times and how everything's going to fit together and here's the chart and we're laying it all out. Even seekers often, usually, initially come to Christianity as investigators asking, is this true? Is, it, is this reasonable? And they should. But a Christian is a person who comes to realize that they are being investigated by God. You sense that there's a power that's dealing with you. you. You are being searched out. You are being grabbed. You are being exposed. See, this is not merely an intellectual Christianity that you can control with your charts and your outlines and your doctrines. It takes you up. You don't take it up because there's a power that's dealing with you. And you see, how does this happen? It's not merely a decision like walking the aisle. Verse 4, he says, it's because he's chosen you. Because he's invaded your world. See, Christianity is not a set of beliefs that you take up. It's a power that takes you up supernaturally. Now, unfortunately, it often starts by this horribly confusing feeling of being disturbed, of being upset. And I think it's important that you understand this. Because what you will find is the things that you once found valuable, things that once defined you as a person, things that once gave you a sense of identity in this life, something that's just core to who you are as a person, whether it's being a mother or being successful or having money or just having people like you, you start to ask yourself the really hard questions like, what's the point? <laughs> this, this doesn't seem to be going anywhere. If this is all there is, why am I bothering is any of this going to last? This is just controlling me and making me miserable. So you start asking some of the big questions in life. I mean, listen, Moses was having a really nice life, living rich and happy in the courts of Pharaoh until he heard the call. Matthew was living the high life as a tax collector, skimming off everything he wanted to live the good life until he heard the call and started following Jesus. Have you heard the call? Is God messing with you right now? See, how does this call come to you? I, I think some of you are dealing with that call right now. Don't even know it. You think it's just a painful divorce that you're going through. All you can see is a debilitating illness. You're feeling the loss of kids moving out of the house. You're dealing with the loss of a job. Or maybe you're dealing with some great failure or a relationship that's fallen apart. That's God dealing with you. And he's coming at you and he's upsetting your old world and all the things that you used to hang on to as your source of identity. Now that's how it often starts, but eventually it moves from a messy, unwanted disturbance 
And it starts to transition into seeing the glory of Jesus, his beauty. See, the word glory is literally a word that means weight. It's what we used to say back in the 60s. It's heavy, man. It's glory. It's weighty. It's got some substance to it, right? And he's, what, what's happening here is Jesus is becoming more weighty than what I once thought of how people liked me. He's becoming more weighty than living a nice, safe, comfy life. He's becoming more weighty than the need to have perfect kids that make me look better as a parent. And you see, you, you know the gospel is coming at you and that it's sinking in when though the facts of the gospel may have always been there and you've known them your whole life, suddenly the weight of them begins to grip your heart the weight of his claims begin to press in on you and disturb you, and you start to see the, the all or nothingness of who he is and what he claims and what he demands. See, suddenly there's no more room for negotiations with this God. There's no room for bargaining. I'll do this if you'll do that, right? You, you can't fit this, li- this kind of Jesus into your life anymore, but your life has to be fit around him. So you can't just be religious on Sundays or for 15 minutes every morning having a quiet time and then turn back to your own life. Not anymore because you're beginning to feel the pressing weight of the ultimatum to give everything over to him. And and I don't know a better way to put this than to say that when the gospel becomes a power, you sense the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And if you've not experienced that yet, then the all or nothing claim of his glory on your life uh, it, it, the gospel hasn't come to you yet. I mean, no matter how many facts you may know about Christianity, because until that happens, all the delusions of self-rule are going to filter Jesus' words so that you really don't hear what he's saying. But when the gospel comes, it breaks through with power. And Jesus either becomes your everything or he's your nothing. He changes everything or he changes nothing. This kind of God can't merely be your helper or your guide or your comforter. He has to be your everything. And let me, one final way to offend everybody. I I don't know a more stark way to put this than to say that you cannot be a, a generic Christian who's still enslaved to the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You've got to give all that up. And you have to see that Jesus is your life. And Jesus is your liberty, and Jesus is your happiness, because there is no me and God here as my co-pilot. There is no God and country here. There is only God. There is only Jesus. As Jesus tells us elsewhere, if your eye gets in the way, pluck it out. If your hand gets in the way, cut it off, because there is no life apart from God. Listen, you know the power of the gospel has come to you when you stop asking, what am I going to do with Jesus? How is he going to help me today? Is it worth the cost of following him as long as I don't have to give up this or that? No, the gospel is still just words for you then. You've got to start asking, what is Jesus going to do with me? It's all or nothing. Now, if you're being at least a, a bit disturbed by all this today, that's a good thing. You should be. Uh, On the other hand, if you're still saying, listen, I know what Christianity is all about. I've always known what's the big deal. This guy's going off the rails. It's a very bad sign. Because the gospel is a living thing. And it comes alive. And it pursues you. And it messes with you. And until it has, you've not dealt with the real thing yet. Now, the last thing I want us to look at is 
how you know that you're becoming a Christian through the power of the gospel when you start to see all the false rescues that you've been counting on your whole life in his place. Notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. Here's how I know the gospel came to you, Paul says. These other churches tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. See, as we said earlier, the first half of the gospel is that you're far more sinful than you ever imagined. And of course, even good religious people understand at least part of their sin. But when the gospel becomes a power, you suddenly start to see how deep and pervasive that sin really is. And particularly, Paul says, you suddenly begin to see all the alternatives, all the counterfeits that you've already been resting in. And now they're exposed for the weak things that they really are. Listen, before the gospel comes to you, you think there are really only two alternatives to life. I can either keep control of my own life or I can lose all control and give it over to him. And, and it's easy for us to think that Christianity is merely, I can either be free and, of course, run the risk that my freedom won't really be able to save me in the end. We'll just have to see. Or I can give up all of my freedom and I can submit myself fully to him. But when the gospel begins to sink in, it clarifies your vision so that you can start to see all the idols that you've already been worshiping all along. I mean, let me give you the classic example of this with rebellious teenage years, right? Where everybody just wants to be free to pursue my own agenda. I want to be unique and me and special and don't hem me in as long as I look exactly like everybody else and wear the exact same clothes that they wear and have the exact same haircut they have and have the exact same group think that they have, right? Because you think you're free, but you're just exchanging one set of rules, your parents, for another set of rules in your peers, and you're still not free, you're, you're still in slavery. And, and it's interesting here how Paul says in, in verses 9 and 10 that you guys turn from idols to serve the living and true God because, listen, Paul was there. In fact, he was the one who led them out of that idolatry. And so he knew firsthand that these were not pagans who had worshipped all the gods of earth and fire and sex and farming and things like that that the pagans do. But he knew that these guys had become Christians out of Judaism. These were Jewish converts who never worshipped any idols, ever. And so I think what he's telling us by this is that everybody has a sense of judgment on the heart. Everybody feels this sense of condemnation inside of them, whether you believe in God or not. Everybody has this voice that's telling them that they're a loser, telling you that you're a nobody, that you're worthless unless you can perform, unless you can please people. Unless you can surpass people with your success, everybody feels the need to prove themselves or else they're going to be condemned. And and it's just natural. It's part of the heart of mankind. And everybody is busy trying to silence that voice with their life's efforts. And as a result, everybody is looking to something in order to rescue them. If I can just be pretty enough, if I can just be popular enough, if I can just be successful enough, if I can just have the perfect family. And you see, when Paul tells these guys, you turned from serving idols to serve the living God, to wait for the rescue through Jesus, Paul is telling us that the only alternative to being a Christian is to be enslaved to something else. There's something else that your heart is already telling you that's going to rescue you from the coming wrath. And whatever it is, you're going to serve it, 
it will become your master and it will own you. Because see, the alternative to turning your life over to God is not that you have to give up your freedoms. You know, I gotta start working really hard to become a better person now. I gotta be more moral, I've, I've gotta get my life together. No, what, what, what Christianity is, you've gotta give up the idols that you've already been serving. The condemning voice of your parents that you're trying to outrun. The, the elusive career that haunts you. A, a mom with all of her chicks in a row. Finding the perfect mate. And so, see, the real, alter real alternative here is I can either continue in the slavery of all these delusions that I think can save me, or I can turn to Jesus, who alone has the power to actually rescue me from that coming wrath that haunts us all. See, when the gospel sinks in, the issue is not, should I hang on to my freedom or should I become a Christian? The real issue is I can either remain a slave to the many things that I think are going to rescue me, which have never worked and never will. Or I can go to Jesus who took that wrath for me and therefore who can actually save me from it. Listen, far too many women are looking for a man to rescue them from the drudgery of their lives. Cinderella's looking for a handsome prince. Far too many men are filled with fears of failure, that deep sense inside that you're really just an ugly beast and we're looking for some beautiful princess who kisses us and turns us from the ugly frogs that we know we are into this handsome prince. And see, the, you know, the fairy tales are filled with these kind of hopes. Everybody is looking to something. Everybody knows they need to be rescued. And so follow the trail of your emotions to find out what those things are for you. If you want to find out what idols are controlling your life today, what things fill you with the greatest fear of losing it? What accusations can fill your heart with such defeat that you fall apart? What things most easily lead to your anger, to your bitterness? What thing, if you lost it, would make life just not worth living anymore? Whatever it is, it's always because there's something that your heart is telling you, this will rescue you. And it's being threatened. Or it's being taken away. Or you're afraid you won't be able to keep up with it. And see, the gospel comes along and it shows you that you can either continue in the slavery of all of those things, or you can have the freedom of Jesus. And when you see that, the gospel has dawned on you. See, there really is a handsome prince who will make you a beautiful queen. There is a beauty that sees underneath all of our ugliness and kisses us anyway and turns us from a beast into a beauty. Listen, because Jesus took the only condemnation that could ever really destroy you, he's the only one who can rescue you from your hurts and your fears today. See, the gospel is not, God, I'm so sorry for being a bad person. I'll try harder. I'll be better next time. You're not capable of that. Don't, don't lie to yourself. But the gospel is, I see now that I have been trying to save myself through chasing after success and, and beauty and popularity and even morality. And now I see that I'm never going to lose that nagging sense of condemnation that my heart keeps speaking to me of not being able to keep up. Not until I come to see that Jesus has already lived the life that I should have lived and he's died the death that I should have died. And he's given it to me as a free gift. And that's the only master that will not destroy you. 
He's the only master that leads you to perfect freedom. See, every other rescue out there, it depends on your effort. It sometimes depends on luck outside of your control. And it always tells you that it's not enough. There, there's always more to be done. And you can't let up for a second. It's exhausting. Listen, here, here's the plight of our teenagers. In, in our world, girls have to be beautiful and guys have to be cool. And both are desperately afraid the other's going to find out that they're really not, right? But, you know, most of us have caught on to the secret now that we're adults. Girls at that age really just want to use guys to feel better about themselves. And guys only want to use girls to feel better about themselves. And neither really loves each other. They're just using each other and moving on. That's why high school is, who are you dating this week? Because <laughs> you're always moving on. Only Jesus truly loves you. Because only Jesus died to rescue you from the prisons of shame and fear. And listen, as we close here, I just want you to notice that the verb tenses in verses 9 and 10 are still in the present tense. They turned in the past from idols to now serve and now wait for the rescue of Jesus from heaven. Because listen, this is an ongoing call for you and for me today. Because we're constantly tempted to run back to our old lovers and it's easy for us to forget that Jesus is the only source of rescue. Listen, every time that you've been worried this week, every time you've been afraid, every time you were unhappy or felt insecure, it's because you've forgotten. And you're running back to your old idols and you're asking them to do for your heart what they've never been able to do. And so as we come to the end here, I want you to think of those things your heart is telling you that you just have to have today or you're a nobody. That if you lose, your life isn't worth living. Stop waiting on those things to rescue you. And wait for the only Son in heaven to rescue you. Let's cast our idols from our thrones. And let's meet him here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beauty of the gospel. For the rescue that it brings. Because it rests in the beautiful, perfect, finished works of Jesus. And doesn't rest in ours at all. Because we know our works are tainted, they're impure, we're just not that good, we're not that consistent. And Lord, we thank you that there is a gospel hope that says it has nothing to do with us, but has everything to do with Jesus. Help for us to be able to lay aside those pseudo-rescuers that we tend to run to, and help for us to believe and rest in the fact that you're the only one who can deliver us and escape not just the coming wrath, but the daily reminders of that coming wrath through all of the accusations of failure and ugliness and worthlessness. Help for us to be able to silence those voices through the beauty of the gospel that we are loved, beautiful, cherished children of the King. And we pray this in his name. Amen.